Good afternoon, Health Naturally. How are you today? I'm very well indeed, Mike. Very Re- well indeed. Ready to go for a big always, hour? Always, always. Particularly with you. You're doing so well. <laughs> well, I've <laughs> spoilt you, CJ. I'll be back in a fortnight for you and you won't oh, know what well, to do. Uh, well, yeah, we'll get by. You'll get by. You'll do your best. <laughs> Look, uh, last week we, we came up with the determination that uh, you would talk about some of your most important discoveries yes. in your study and use of yes. medicinal herbs. Yes. Uh, just a little taste of what we have well, today. I want to talk about probably the most significant discovery as far as herbs are concerned that I have made in my professional career and that is the discovery of a very very interesting and authoritative source of information we'll talk about it but uh, first we have uh, Caroline from uh, Corlett Caroline you've got some dry eyes you'd like Dennis to have a look at today I have yes please hello Caroline how are you hello Dennis thank you so much for taking my call it's my pleasure Uh, my problem is um, constant dry eyes, yes. and all day, every day, I've tried every eye drop known to man, yes. and I saw an eye specialist who said, really and truly, all you can do is just put drops in all the time, all day. Yes. Um, I read somewhere that flaxseed oil is very, yes. very good, yes. and I rushed out and bought some tablets, yes. but yes. unfortunately, they made me really nauseous. Okay. So well, I wondered if you'd any answers. Okay. There is, how can you call it, some useful anecdotal information certainly suggesting that flaxseed oil as a supplement taken chronically, that is over an extended period of time, has some benefit in this condition. But uh, if you can't handle the the flaxseed, um, try some fish oil. Yes. You'll find that there's uh, similar constituents in both oils and they both have a reputation for this condition, and admittedly, it's anecdotal. With some supplements, there's a, a significant, credible uh, clinical support for using natural products. I'm not aware that there's a great deal of support for what we're suggesting here, but anecdotally, um, either the fish oil or flaxseed oil, both of which have similar uh, chemistries, um, seem to be of some benefit when they've persevered with. So if you haven't used uh, fish oils, they're readily available in, in an encapsulated form. Uh, using them, always, uh, I emphasise this, if you're going to use uh, supplements such as that, uh, make sure you take it, in a, take it in a fairly optimum dosage. Uh, for instance, fish oils uh, for something like uh, rheumatoid arthritis, for which they are very useful, are recommended to be taken in a dose of six to nine grams daily. And I would be suggesting that if you're going to take on board this anecdotal information, um, it would be uh, important that you work towards that upper level of dosage. So principle number one, give that a go. I do agree with with your specialist that this is not an easy condition to treat and topical management um, at the end of the day might be the only thing that's useful, but... Uh, like yourself, if I had the situation, I'd be doing my damnedest to exploit whatever possibilities there were to lessen uh, the, the, the nature of it. Now, the other thing is this. Um, in the Western um, tradition of medical herbalism, the European and the English herb known as Eyebright has, oh, yeah. has a reputation of benefit for addressing uh, almost any condition associated with the eye. For instance, if a patient presents in my clinic who has chronic 
redness of the eyes, put it down to whatever cause, allergenicity or other factors. Uh, Eyebright is always something that I think about and it gives pleasant results. In the older days, well, when I say the older days, not, not, so, not so long ago, I, I, I'm an old codger myself, but uh, the, 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 the use of Eyebright eye washes was something that was used uh, very significantly to address some of the symptoms. It's not as popularly used today, and if you were to use an infusion of Eyebright, you would have to ensure that the preparation that you made uh, was, was uh, clean. Uh, in other words, make sure that the water had been boiled well and make the infusion first and then, right. and then double boil it to sterilise any carryover of any microbes, which would be unlikely, and with that sterilised water, if you wanted to, um, make an eye bath and see if the old infusion of Eyebright um, has any relief. Orally, oh, okay. orally yeah. however, orally as a supplement and using it in an encapsulated form, that would be a useful thing to do also, either on its own or in supporting uh, the anecdotal confidence that we have in either the fish oil or the flaxseed oil. Now, right. I'll, I'll draw a long bow and say also that in, in, in modern uh, herbal medicine, uh, standardised preparations of bilberry are popularly used for multiple uh, ocular conditions. And whilst this condition perhaps uh, is a little bit challenging for any benefit from, I, from, uh, from this particular herb, um, keep, in, keep in mind that the bilberry contains a very well-known bracket of bioflavonoids known as anthocyanidins. And these substances have intriguing and developing uh, abilities to address a lot of low-grade inflammatory conditions. So that might be useful also in addressing some of the underlying factors that might, and I put might there with an exclamation mark beside it, might be associated with this condition. So there are a couple of things. Try the fish oil in higher dosages. Think yes. about using Eyebright orally um, yes. or as a topical application. And thirdly, don't overlook the mountain of information, uh, growing mountain of information supporting the use of, uh, of bilberry uh, standardised preparations. Oh, great. Thank you, Dennis. So it wouldn't be overdoing it to, to do all of them. You well, know, I think it might be. The, Look, it yeah. might be. Well, it, my uh, advice would be to give each one of them a go before you fire a shotgun at them. Yeah, uh, because right. at the end of the day, if you were to do all those things, not that they're expensive, uh, you wouldn't know what was working if you were getting a result. I, I, I would start off with the flaxseed, flaxseed fish oil approach and give that a number of months, see yeah. where that took you, and then move on from there if you didn't yes. get any results. Oh, some great advice for you. Thank you very much, Caroline. Dennis, uh, are you calling yourself an old, old codger? What, what's this about? It's oh, not, well, were, you, were you around when Henry Ford built his first car or something? Pretty well. In fact, you know, our birthdays are pretty well around about the same <laughs> day, but I took, I took a lot of herbs. Okay. <laughs> More so than he, perhaps. James at Wall's End, uh, you've got some diabetes and weight problems today. Good afternoon. Hello. How are you going today? Hello, James. How are you? Good, thank you. Good, good. Um, bringing up, uh, I'm a type 1 diabetic. Yes. And four, four years, I'm also insulin resistant. Yes. 
And uh, four years ago, I went on to an insulin pump and yes. a continuous glucose monitor, which has yes. virtually changed my life. It's yes. been a lot better. Yes. Um, but I'm, I'm currently using over 200 units of insulin a day to keep my levels where they should be. Yes. And I've put on a lot of weight in mm. my stomach. Okay. Um, doctors are telling me that um, insulin being a growth hormone and using an excess of it um, is a big contributor. Yes. But it's building up apparently around the organs, the liver and things yes. like that. And I was yes. wondering if there's anything that you can take that might assist in losing, uh, losing some of that fat that builds up? Look, this is a difficult question, obviously, and anything I say here must be confirmed or supported by your medical and, and um, dietetic um, managers. Sure. One of the things yeah. I would say is have a talk to your dietitian about perhaps the uh, balance of carbohydrate to protein in your diet. My, my, view, okay. is, my view is that there is not enough emphasis in, in all areas of health management uh, associated with this carbohydrate-protein balance. My view is that a lot of conditions uh, pertaining to uh, blood sugar management uh, could take on board the importance, perhaps, of uh, restricting, reducing um, the level of carbohydrates and uh, uh, complementing with, uh, with a higher level of protein. Now, okay. this, this needs to be run past your dietitian to get her, um, her advice on it. Um, but I certainly went in that direction. I had a diagnosis of insulin resistance and type 2 diabetes. And essentially, I worked my way out of that. So technically speaking now, I'm not insulin resistant or type 2 diabetes. And essentially that was, in my situation, which is quite different to yours perhaps, that was brought about as a result of, um, for instance, foregoing breakfast, and this might need to be really something discussed with your dietitian because that is a fairly radical move. And keep in mind, I was borderline type 2 and diagnosed insulin resistant. But, uh, but yeah. I, read, I read the text, uh, Breakfast is a Dangerous Meal, took on board the implications of that, a book written by a British uh, medical practitioner, and also moved in the direction that I've said of increasing the level of protein, being very, very observant of how much carb was in my diet and the subtle forms in which uh, sugar creeps into our, our, our diet on a daily basis. There are a couple of things that I would raise with your uh, dietitian. Um, yes. Mention the book that I have uh, said there, that is Breakfast is a Dangerous Meal. Um, yep. uh, it should be read by, in, in my opinion and I keep saying in my opinion because it is an opinion in my opinion yep. one of the most provocative and useful works associated with fa dietary uh, factors and eating factors associated with diabetes or diabetic tendencies the, the other thing I would say is if there is an accumulation of fat particularly around the liver don't underestimate the, the, the subtle benefits of the herb St Mary's Thistle. Okay. Now, that is a herb that is recommended, particularly in the European literature, as a quiet achiever, even in addressing fatty liver situations. So, again, I would be recommending you discuss that with your medical managers. It's pretty well, yep. 
pretty well known. If you were to uh, get on Google, you'd find a lot of information about it. It's a very safe herb. Uh, I had a lot of. I had the privilege many years ago, probably 30 years ago, of giving some of the first lectures on it in Australia, even though it had been used for decades in Europe. But I'd, I'd think about those things a little bit of, or an ongoing use of St Mary's thistle to try to work against fatty accumulation, particularly around the liver, and a bit, yeah. of, a little bit of radical dialogue with your dietitian, particularly perhaps around some radical dietary ideas. Dennis, a little early, we were talking with Caroline about dry eyes, and Judith is on the line. Judith, you've got a solution for dry eyes for Dennis today. Well, Dennis put me on to special. Years ago, yes. So I take six a day. Oh, good girl. And I take two flaxol a day. Good girl. And they got also rid of my dry eyes. Well, I had go. other problems, and you put me onto these yes. through your show. Yes. And they work for there dry eyes. Well, isn't that look? That's very nice of you to ring in, Judith, because sometimes I get accused of uh, making claims that can't be substantiated, and uh, a lot no, of what never. I say. But this is something that uh, you have proven to work for you, and that validates what I have said. That uh, anecdotally, uh, these things have been shown to work. Your conf- confirmation of that. And it makes my day to hear that someone who has listened to the program, who has taken on some of this controversial advice, is getting a benefit for a condition that is not well managed within the mainstream. Thank you, Judith. Dennis, would some of these unsubstantiated claims be that utopian society you tried to forge ahead with? Well, (laughs) we could debate that. We can debate that. We can debate that. Read Tolstoy. Oh, oh, here we go. We are getting into the alternative politics. Good afternoon. David at Belmont. Uh, You've got some gout in the knuckles today. Yeah, hello. Hello, David. Yeah, I've got a... I've been to a specialist and he said I've got a thing called pseudo-gout. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Um, I asked him where I could take for it and he said nothing. Just put up with it. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> At least you can laugh about it, David. That's a start. Yeah, well, sometimes you can't. It's like some bugger sticking noodles into your knuckles. Okay. okay. I'll... Uh, I'll attempt to say something uh, that might help you, 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 Dave. You've staggered me a little bit. Look, a couple of things to start with. Um, I don't know whether you've read anything or heard anything about the ability of cherry concentrate to address gout symptoms, and even with pseudo-gout, I suspect that it would have a benefit. Certainly, uh, if you were to Google... Um, cherry, cherry extract, cherry concentrate, you would find that it has an effect on levels of uric acid, which in this case may not be evident in your situation, but also the cherry has an accompanying anti-inflammatory benefit that might be useful. So I'd suggest to start with, um, you go to your health food store, uh, there's a health food store at Warners Bay, if not at Belmont, that uh, stock the things that I talk about, Get on, to, get on to a cherry concentrate and work with right. that, but preferably after you've looked at it on, on, uh, on the, on the oh, net to see right. the situation. And there are two uh, minerals that with any of these gouty-type symptoms I always think about. And these minerals are known as celloids, C-E-L-L-O-I-D-S. 
Um, and they're not that readily available. They would be available from uh, naturopaths, some pharmacists. They're not expensive, and they represent a very old system of mineral therapy, um, which I have used all my professional career. Now, there are two minerals that I have always recommended which seem to help this condition. Um, one of them is sodium phosphate, and it's just abbreviated SP. Right. And in, and in the product range, it has a 96 beside it. Now, don't be overwhelmed by that. That has a lot to do with the number of tablets in the preparation. SP96, right. and the other one is a particular form of silica, and it is... Uh, just written up as S79. Now, those two preparations, for, that, uh, for those of us that know a bit about mineral therapy uh, and have used it and seen its benefits, that is a useful combination when persevered with in addressing most painful, inflammatory, arthritic, gouty symptoms. Uh, if I were you, I'd be a little bit proactive and not just grin and bear it. Um, yeah. Go to your health food store, try that. You've probably had it for a while. Don't expect overnight that you're going to get a cortisone benefit. Work with it for a number of weeks, if not a number of months. Right, yeah. All right. Thank you very much for that advice. I'll see how you go, David. If I can't do any good, I'll come and see you at your rooms. Okay, David. Thank you very much, David. And uh, what you, it was a good place to start, wasn't it, Dennis, that, uh, that he was told, too bad, so sad. <laughs> So you're, you're staggered, aren't you? I'm staggered. I'll tell you what, you mentioned Tolstoy. Here's one of his quotes for you. Yeah. Everybody thinks of changing the world, but no one thinks of changing himself. Yeah, well, that's a lot of truth in How that. How profound. I think that's very, very profound. <laughs> a lot of talk, Dennis, about the dry eyes. Uh, and uh, Wendy uh, was uh, just rang up a minute ago and said, look, I missed the, the remedy. Just quickly, can you give us those again, please? Very quickly, uh, Wendy, um, what we were talking about first up with dry eyes this morning was the controversial and anecdotal information that suggests either using fish oil or flaxseed oil uh, can give a good result. And I said it's anecdotal and it's controversial. And I suggested to the dear lady that rang in that, we, that she try uh, that and then we had the pleasure... Of, uh, of listening to a lady, Judith, who rang in and who had heard me talk about dry eyes and the use of fish oil and flaxseed oil on this program some time ago and had been using those supplements and rang in to say that um, uh, she's done particularly well on them. And that, uh, that pleased me. I was happy to hear that. So you have rung in wanting to know uh, what we were talking about I would reiterate, in, in your situation, if it's similar to what we've been talking about, I can see nothing wrong with trying uh, a long-term treatment with elevated dosages of fish oils and or some flaxseed oil. Back to the phones, and Doug at Fletcher, you've got some sinus problems. Hello, um, Dennis, how are you going? Hello, Doug, how are you? I'm fine, thanks. Good, I'm just good. ringing up to give you some feedback on some sinus problems that you advised me on oh, yes. probably about yeah. 18 months ago. Yes, yes. Um, I had um, an, well, an over amount of um, sinus phlegm stuff in uh, my throat yes. nearly every morning. Yes. Uh, and it was tending to get worse. Yes. And you advised me to go on to um, uh, Senega and ammonia. Yes. And some uh, horseradish and garlic tablets. Yes. 
yes, which I did. Yes, yes. And it wasn't a huge success. Um, but recently, I had a, um, a bout of gout. Yes. And it was quite severe. Yes. Um, both my brothers get it, and finally I've got um, <laughs> had a dose of it. But um, I had to give up drinking my um, beloved few beers of a day. Okay. And I did it for, um, oh, well, this is probably two months now. Yes. Uh, and I've had no sinus problems. Oh, dear, oh, dear. That's that's a huge sacrifice, isn't it, for sinus, mate? <laughs> oh, you, you've, you've shot me out of the water there. <laughs> look, look, it, it, it could be that the, the yeast content of the beer was something that you were developing an allergic reaction to, which in turn was producing uh, symptoms of congestion, sinus and post-nasal drip. So uh, there is perhaps an explanation associated with that because we do know that what we call catarrhal conditions or mucousy type conditions, particularly associated with the upper respiratory tract, uh, can be triggered off by all sorts of uh, environmental toxins as well as... Um, uh, allergenic substances found in the food chain so it's conceivable um, but there might be a I'll say this tongue in cheek there might be a compromise here you might you might have to you might have to change um, your your beer and uh, uh, and you might find that um, uh, having some of the craft beers that we make so well in this country now or trying some of the uh, imported European and Japanese beers. Now you can see where my, my predilections are. <laughs> you, you, might, you might find that you might still be able to enjoy the odd ale without going down with sinusitis. I say that tongue-in-cheek. Uh, Dennis, I, might have to invent, I might have to invent a low-yeast beer. Oh, now that's, that's not a bad idea. That's <laughs> not a bad idea. But we'll work on it. Dennis before, we all he- Dennis, before we all head off for a couple this afternoon, because it sounds like that's where we're going, can I just throw some two cents in? You can. As a, a long-suffering sinus sufferer. Yes. yes. Doug, how are you with your dairy? Did you? Uh, did I, don't, I don't have dairy and um, a lot of it other than just cheese, but I've never been a great milk drinker. But when I did, um, it, it affected me yeah, um, it does. There you to go. a certain extent. Mm. Yeah. So well, give I, up milk. Yeah, yeah. I, I know. I know. Dennis and I went on on a lot of milk, and that's when it comes. But the horse, the uh, garlic and horseradish does great stuff for me. Look, too bad it had to be at a sacrifice for you, Doug. But <laughs> oh, no, we're, we're in mourning here. We've all we've already dressed in black, and <laughs> we'll work on how we can overcome your problem from the idea of developing, if you like, an ale that uh, has minimal yeast in it. All right, it will continue. And Doug at, sorry, let's make that Reg at Valentine, uh, you've got a gout remedy. It looks like Reg, looks like Reg just couldn't wait any longer. So, Dennis, look, yeah, we did, might yeah, be yeah. at that point. We might just be at that point where we can start talking about our topic for today. Some, we you, might, you we know, we're going to take the next couple of weeks talking about some of your biggest discoveries, yes, but there is yeah. one that apparently sits head and shoulders above them all. We've got seven minutes. What is it? The discovery, the discovery in the early 80s, the very, very early 80s, of the text that was to alter the whole direction of modern herbal medicine practice in the English-speaking world, and I can still remember it to this day, I was uh, lecturing in a college in Randall Street 
in Sydney and desperately looking for modern support for my teaching and my claims as to the medical efficacy of herbs. And I came across a recently published text entitled The British Herbal Pharmacopoeia of 1983. I have referred to that text on this program produced by the British Herbal Medicine Association. I have referred to that text as being the Bible of modern herbal medicine and indeed it has become that in as much that it was a text that was put together by British medical practitioners, uh, pharmacologists and pharmacognosists, and also put together by a group of Britain, some of Britain's best-known herbal medicine practitioners. It was a wonderful text which put into one volume the whole potential clinical usage of herbal medicine and changed the face of my teaching and also the style of herbalism that became practised or that was then practised in Australia. Yeah, we know you have mentioned that mm. uh, that particular mm. publication mm. more times than we sure. can count. Sure. Do you th- think that one of the things that gave it a lot of street credibility was yes. not only the fact that it was a bunch of herbalists that yes. were using it, yeah. but, but different uh, entire sections of the medical community? Oh, absolutely. Mm. Uh, as far as I'm aware, this was the first time that you had a text put together by agreeing and collaborating professionals from mainstream medicine, that is British GPs, uh, mainstream pharmacists and pharmacognosists and mainstream well-known herbalists in the United Kingdom that have been practising for many years. The coming together of those three disciplines produced a text which, as I've said, it was a landmark discovery and changed the whole of my approach to teaching herbal medicine. And anyone that um, will sustain my lectures today will know that to undergraduates or even to some practitioners, I'll start my lecturing by recommending that if they are not using or haven't got on their desk a copy of the 1983 edition of the British Herbal Pharmacopoeia, in my opinion, they are behind the ball as far as modern professional herbalism is concerned. So you copy and paste a lot of this stuff into your... Uh, well, in fact... <laughs> not downplaying it, that's, that's not what I meant, you know what I mean. It's, it's essential. Well, it is essential, mm. and I think that uh, I've got a couple of uh, copies for the BHP, as I call Plagiarism, it. that's the word I was Plagiarism, trying to think of. yes, I thought you were going there. <laughs> uh, I've, but I frequently mention it so much mm. that... Uh, the, a couple of about five or six years ago, the British Herbal Medicine Association in the UK uh, printed a special uh, run of the British Herbal Medicine or British Herbal Pharmacopoeia, particularly for a group that was conducting my uh, postgraduate program in Melbourne, and we were very grateful for that. And um, the text is still available. You know, you're only a step away from the next edition. You'll be writing the forward or the intro. How did you know that? I know that. It's amazing. <laughs> uh, look, we'll get into some more of some other discoveries next yeah. week. We haven't got enough time, but uh, one more call. Reg is back from Valentine. Uh, Reg, you have a remedy for gout. You'll want to run across Dennis today. We've got about two minutes. Righto, mate. Hello, Hi, Reg. Dennis. How are you? Good. Good, Reg. Yeah, just, just real quick. On holidays, yes. I got gout. Yes. Thought I'd been bitten by a red-backed spider and was about yeah. to saw my bloody leg off. And uh, anyway... Well, everything's drastic I... today, isn't it? Oh, from, yeah. From the yeah, one hand, we got... got we... Four bugger that they picked up the beers. That was worse. 
You'd rather lose anyway, the leg, you reckon? Yeah. But anyway, when I got home with the saltwater pool, I thought, oh, yeah, acidic levels. What do you do for your pool? You put soda ash in it. Yeah. So I read up on bicarb soda. Yes. Yep. So since I've been taking quarter to a half a teaspoon of a big glass of water every morning, that was six years ago, and I've never had anything since. What you're saying there basically says that you uh, alkalized your system. Exactly. And that the high level of uric acid, which is behind gout, was yep. reduced as a result of that simple procedure. Exactly, um, mate, exactly. That, it, it makes sense. I, I dare to say there is a clinical or scientific explanation for it. It certainly makes sense that if you have uh, too yep. much acid, uh, try yep. to address it with alkalizing the system and it's very interesting in as much that in the literature for instance the vegetable celery which is a very 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 alkaline vegetable is recommended also as a means of of addressing chronic gout so there's a tie over there it would seem that alkalizing substances do reflect themselves by a a mild change in the blood profile which in your which in your case has been validated so just as people have rang in this morning and said, well, you know, using uh, fish oil and flaxseed oil has helped my dry eyes, here you've been saying that take a little bit of um, basically bicarb, you've, you've done well. Do it till it stops working, Reg. That's pretty much what Dennis is saying. Look, yeah, we've also got a note. If you can just repeat, Dennis, some of the minerals uh, for gout. Okay. The two minerals that I recommended uh, are known as celloid in, their, in a, a range called celloids. They're only available from health practitioners, naturopaths, Herbalists, etc. Um, sodium phosphate, which is abbreviated SP96, and a particular preparation of silica, which is abbreviated S79. Wonderful, Dennis. We covered it all. We, we, we didn't really get to many of your discoveries. You got the important one. We'll cover that again next week. Well, we didn't take up Tolstoy, and you were in the break. I gave you a very quite... profound statement. We'll do about some Tolstoy that. again next Will week. We? Yeah, well, we? well, we got stuck with a guy that's giving up beer, a bloke that's sawing his leg off, and a guy that went to the doctor and he said, too bad, I can't help you. Does that sound about right? <laughs> that's what I was listening to. I've been a happy program. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this podcast from 2NURFM at the University of Newcastle. Topics range from gardening to health, well-being, pet care, finance, business and travel. You'll find them all at 2NURFM.com. <laughs>